0: Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for Friday, March 1st. All material heard on iris is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Scott Sblavik, and my name is Rachel Mithelman. And here is Scott with our first story.
1: Thank you, Rachel. Man found guilty of murder. Granite City man convicted in death of Knox County Deputy. This is written by Lisa Hammer. Dateline is Cambridge. A Henry County jury on Thursday found Dalen K. Richardson, age 24, of Granite City, guilty of murder in the April 29, 2022 death of Knox County Deputy Nicholas Weist. The jury opted not to select the lesser charge of aggravated reckless homicide. The jury also found that Weist was a peace officer performing his official duties, which enhances the penalty from 20 to 60 years to a mandatory natural life in prison. Sentencing by Judge Norma Kozlerich was set for May 24th. Richardson faced murder charges after an April 29, 2022 car chase from Galesburg into Henry County that ended after Weist put down stop sticks on Route 150 at Alpha. Richardson's vehicle struck him and overturned. Richardson was apprehended in a field after running from the scene. In closing arguments, defense attorney Bruce Carman said it was really unlikely that Richardson had the opportunity or ability to control his vehicle from the instant he left the roadway at Route 150 and 150th Street, covering 160 feet before he struck and killed Weist. Accident Reconstructionist Sergeant Paul Kuhn of the Illinois State Police had testified the distance from the point the Ford Taurus's tire marks went off the road into the shoulder to the point of impact with Weist was 160 feet. He agreed that at 100 miles per hour, the vehicle would have been traveling 146.7 feet per second. Kuhn said he didn't think the tire tracks were any evidence of braking. He didn't have time to form an intent to t- to kill, Carmen told the jury. Carmen compared the case to a mass shooting in Las Vegas in 2017, saying murder was a man in a hotel room in Las Vegas who started firing on a crowd, although he didn't intend to kill anyone in particular. That's murder, he said. In contrast, he said, we don't have Richardson doing something intentionally with the idea to kill somebody. Carmen also disputed that Weist was in the course of performing official duties an enhancement that enables a sentence of natural life in prison. There are some things that a peace officer does that are not official, he said, adding that Weist was a Knox County deputy who somehow ended up in rural Henry County. He pointed out that Weist's shift was over. I think in the end it was reckless homicide, he concluded. It's a bad reckless homicide, but it's not murder. Henry County State's attorney, Catherine Runty, countered Carmen's argument regarding whether Weist was in the midst of his official duties. I'm not sure how much more official duties get than stopping a fleeing vehicle, she said. She noted Weist was still within Knox County and on his way home when he heard radio traffic about Richardson and the chase from Galesburg. Runty also noted Weist's squad car lights were on and oscillating as the at the scene of the crash, and he had been given authority by a supervisor to deploy the stop sticks. She pointed out that while Carmen argued that Richardson was not in control of his vehicle, he had managed to stay on the roadway the whole pursuit until he chose flight to get around the stop sticks. Trial testimony was that when Richardson struck Weist. The deputy was launched one hundred and twenty seven feet into the west ditch. Mr Carmen would like you to believe the defendant didn't intend for this result to happen, she said. The intent was to not get caught. Ever. Runty said showing that intent showing that intent was why she included evidence of shots being fired by Richardson while he was still in Knox County. That shows you what the end game was here, she said. She said Richardson was determined to get away from police at any cost. Richardson became vocal as he was being led out of the courtroom, prompting his relatives to call out to him. Judge Kozlerich admonished them. You are guests in my house. You follow my rules, she said. If you don't like it, you don't have to be a guest.
2: Leaping
0: into the world This uh, article is accompanied by a photograph of newborn Paisley Ray Cole who is wearing a cute little knitted frog hat. Um, The knitter had um, knitted several for leap day babies. Paisley Cole is one day old and already the leader of an exclusive club. She was the first of many babies to be born on Leap Day at Genesis Health System in Davenport. Born at 4.40 a.m. on February 29th, Paisley started a trend with a total of six babies born at Genesis within 12 hours. Four other mothers were in labor as of 4 p.m., Thursday bringing the potential up to ten Leap Day babies. As of Wednesday, there were no babies at all scheduled to be born at Genesis. On average, the hospital sees about four births a day, said registered nurse Emma Clino Wagshaw. Knowing the odds of being born on leap day are one in 1500, Thursday was pretty special, she said. It's kind of wild because this week has been pretty slow, she said. It's kind of funny that it's picking up this week. Shaley Cole, who's Paisley's mom, said her daughter was scheduled to arrive on March 23rd. Instead, she arrived three weeks early. The funny thing is I joked a few weeks prior that it would be funny to have a leap day baby, but I didn't actually expect it to happen. According to data aggregated by 538, from 1994 to 2014, an average of 10,462 babies are born on February 29th a higher average than Christmas, April Fool's Day, or New Year's Day. Just 12 hours old during her first interview Thursday, Paisley slept in her mother's arms while Dad Eric stood close by. On her head, Paisley wore an orange frog hat to represent her leap into the world. The hats were hand-knit by 22-year-old Paige Nimrick, whose mom, Kim Nimrick, is the manager at the Genesis Birth Center. Friends and family were excited to meet the baby, including Paisley's older brothers, River and Archer. Both boys were nearly nine pounds when they were born, Cole said, which was a big difference from six-pound, seven-ounce Paisley. Cole said her father-in-law successfully predicted the birthdays of her boys, and this time her mother-in-law predicted Paisley's It's just one more reason February 29th is special to her, she said. She's leaping into our lives, Cole said. Just a couple of rooms over, Josie and Alex Green celebrated the birth of their son at 10.03 a.m. on Thursday. Baby Green did not yet have a name, but arrived at 41 weeks and one day, weighing 6 pounds, 14 ounces, and was 20 inches long. His due date was February 21st, Alex said, but he was hoping for a leap day baby all along. Leap day baby. Alex's dad, best friend, and one of Josie's friends all have March 1st birthdays. Having the baby born on their birthdays would have been special, he said, but baby green getting a day to himself made it even better. Both Josie and Alex said it felt crazy to see their son, their first baby, sleeping peacefully with his own orange frog hat. To Josie, it almost didn't feel quite real. She told me after the first two hours, we're parents, Alex recalled, and I said, yeah, that started two hours ago. Having a leap day baby may have been the hope, but it wasn't the plan. Now, Alex said, there's a new meaning to an often forgotten day. You don't really think about leap year. It's a day that's really forgotten about, he said. Now we can't forget about it. The next story on the front page, Man Accused of Murder, testifies. This is by Anthony Watt. A man accused of killing another at a Rock Island house party testified Thursday that he acted in self-defense. Glenn J. Evans, Jr., age 19, of Rock Island, faces a single count of first-degree murder, according to court records. Authorities alleged he killed Xavier A. McNair, age 19, on August 19, 2023, at a house party in the 2000 block of 33rd Street in Rock Island. When the shooting began, Evans and McNair were arguing over a gun that McNair, McNair had apparently taken from Evans, according to previous testimony. Both men were armed when the confrontation occurred. One of Evans' attorneys, Calvin McCabe, and Assistant State's Attorney Jesse Brockway questioned Evans during his testimony on Thursday. Evans' testimony included that when he confronted McNair about the missing handgun, he saw that McNair had it under his arm. Evans said he had one of his father's pistols, which Evans found in the glove box of his car while looking for the missing handgun. Evans is the son of Rock Island County Republican Central Committee Chairman Glenn J. Evans, Sr. McNair approached him and had his finger on the trigger, Evans said. Evans told the court, that during this encounter he asked McNair for the gun and that McNair told him they should take it outside. He testified someone is not supposed to have their finger on the trigger of a gun unless that person intends to use it. When McNair approached him, Evans told the court that he interpreted McNair's actions as a threat. Evans took his own gun out and told McNair he was not going to let McNair shoot him, Evans testified Thursday. Evans had his firearm pointed down when he entered the room, he said. When McNair saw Evans was also armed, McNair moved deeper into the room. Other people told McNair to give up the gun, and one juvenile teen attempted to get the firearm, Evans testified. He continued trying to get the gun back from McNair. Then McNair stepped to the side of the juvenile and shot Evans in the leg. Evans said from the stand, Evans' account of the encounter differs from accounts given by other witnesses earlier in the trial, including the juvenile who attempted to mediate. During her cross-examination, Brockway asked Evans if it was possible he shot himself. Evans replied that based on his wound, there was no way he'd shot himself. After he was shot, he fell toward the door of the room, retrieved his own firearm back out of his pocket, and returned fire, Evans testified. After the first shot, everyone ran out of the room, Evans testified. He and McNair were first, and McNair got ahead of him. Evans could see that McNair still had the firearm, he testified. The shooting was recorded by a security camera at the residence where it occurred, Brockway played that video Tuesday while Rock Island police detective Luke Sarah provided context from the stand. There is the sound of gunfire. People scream, then some run out of the house. One of them is the person Sarah identified as McNair. He falls down the porch stairs to the concrete path where he remains prone. The person Sarah identified as Evans follows and stands over McNair. Fire several more shots at the prone body. Grab something that Sarah told the court was thought to be a firearm from near the body. Evans then walks through the yard out of view. When he saw McNair fall on the porch, Evans testified Thursday he did not know if McNair had tripped. He could not tell if he'd shot McNair. He said McNair still had the gun. Evans continued shooting until he saw McNair no longer hold the firearm, he testified. He felt threatened until McNair dropped the firearm. McNair died on the way to the hospital, police said previously. Evans' shot in the leg was treated and released. Evans chose to have a bench trial, so Judge Daniel P. Dalton, not a jury, must decide Evans' culpability once testimony is concluded. In December, McCabe filed a notice of affirmative defense, stating Evans could argue he acted in self-defense, defense of a person at trial. The trial began Tuesday and Brockway arrested her case Thursday morning after presenting a number of witnesses. Among the prosecution's witnesses were Damian Anderson and the juvenile teenager who testified they were in the room with Evans and McNair during the argument and when the first shot was fired. The two witnesses testified both men held firearms while they argued. Evans' gun was in his hand, but he had it pointed at the ground, the witnesses said. McNair's gun was also in his hand, but was near his side, under his armpit. Evans moved his hands as he talked, but Anderson, 19, said he did not see Evans point the weapon at anyone. McNair was not waving his gun around, Anderson said. He also did not point his firearm at anyone, the two testified, nor did he make any aggressive moves toward Evans. The teen told the court she offered to try to get the gun back from McNair for Evans, but McNair would not let her have it. Both witnesses testified they heard the first shot but did not see who fired it. Anderson said he ran from the room and saw McNair, who was his friend, also running. The teenager said she heard the shot behind her and felt the discharge near her foot. She testified Evans was behind her. The Rock Island County State's Attorney's Office initially charged Evans on August 21 of 2023 with second-degree murder, according to previous reporting. Underlying that charge was the allegation that Evans thought the circumstances he found himself in would justify the killing or exonerate him, according to previous reporting. Prosecutors allege that belief was not reasonable. The state's attorney's office amended the charge to first-degree murder on August 25th, according to previous reporting. Upon completion of Evans' testimony on Thursday afternoon, the trial concluded for the day. It is scheduled to resume Friday with further defense testimony.
1: Thank you, Rachel. Choir Students to Sing with Foreigner. This is written by Olivia Allen and Gannon Hannevold. On Sunday, legendary classic rock band Foreigner will make a stop at the Vibrant Arena in Moline, but they won't be alone on stage. As part of the band's historic farewell tour, Foreigner will perform their hit, I Want to Know What Love Is, alongside Davenport Central High School choir students. While Davenport Central's choir is used to big shows and stages, Assistant Choir Director Reed Keller said Sunday's performance is unparalleled. We try to give them lots of different performance opportunities, but this is one of the most unique for sure, he said. This is a little different, getting to help out a world-famous rock band like Foreigner. Foreigner is one of the best-selling rock bands of their era. They've charted 22 songs on the Billboard Hot 100 with I Want to Know What Love Is standing out as their singular number one hit. The band is also donating $500 to Central's choir program. It's all part of Foreigner's collaboration with the Grammy Foundation to promote and support music education, a tradition the band has upheld for over a decade. To have this band, or any world famous group, singer, or performer, Recognize where they came from and what music educators are trying to do is wonderful, Keller said, noting issues such as teacher burnout and fundraising constraints. We are very grateful for that support because every little bit helps and every little bit of that will go toward enriching opportunities for our students. Keller said they were allotted up to 25 singers to perform on stage with Foreigner and the spots filled up fast. We opened it up to our upperclassmen ensemble first and were able to fill it with just those students, Keller said. Junior Willi- Lillian Sc- Scuttler said one of the thi- was one of the first to sign up. I've been listening to Foreigner like my whole life, she said. My mom would always play their songs growing up, so I was very excited. Fandom aside, Scotteler said she enjoys any opportunity to perform in the community and that Central does a good job of providing those kinds of opportunities. I've been performing on stage for a really long time, Scotteler added, but my mindset going into Sunday is that this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Keller said Central's choir program totals between 220 and 240 students, so some were disappointed to miss out. But, hopefully, they'll buy a ticket and go listen anyway, he said. While she admits to feeling a bit nervous for Sunday's performance, Scottler knows she can lean on her onstage peers. I just have to remember that my school is behind me, she said. Scottler appreciates having foreigners' support, too. I love that they're sharing that feeling with us on stage," she said. It helps to show that we're all just people who love music. Meanwhile, Keller... A foreigner fan himself hopes his students cherish Sunday's performance for years to come. I'm just excited for them to have that experience. The kids have been talking about it constantly, he said. We appreciate even little opportunities to feature our young people and show some of the good in the world. I think making music is one of those inherently good things. The shared moment means a lot to the band, too. Keyboardist Michael Bluestein. Said music education played a huge role in his youth. He started training as a pianist at nine years old and later attended the Berklee School of Music. In a phone interview with the Quad City Times, he said that's why giving back to local music programs at each tour stop is such a priority. Music programs are always the first ones to get cut, Bluestein said. Speaking for myself, and I think a lot of guys in the band, and singers and musicians everywhere, music programs were a huge thing for me. This tour is particularly significant for Foreigner because it's the last one. Sure, many classic rock bands claim they're bidding farewell, but Foreigner's goodbye is for real, Bluestein said. A lot of the impetus for that was coming from our lead singer, Kelly Hansen, he said, noting the vocal challenges associated with singing some of the band's greatest hits. He's not necessarily going to be able to do that forever and you kind of have that expression like let's go out on top the band's founding frontman lou graham left the group in 2003. founding guitarist mick jones has not performed on stage for multiple years now but said on social media in february he is still very much involved in the background as he battles parkinson's disease as foreigner prepares for retirement they're also on another mission get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They, and many of their peers, are hoping to finally get the band that stamp of recognition after decades of commercial success. In recent weeks, iconic rock stars like Slash, Paul McCartney, and David Grohl have released videos clamoring for the band to get put in the hall. Bluestein, who has played with the band since 2008, said he's preparing for a quiet retirement. He's hoping to spend time with his four-month-old daughter and, perhaps, give back to music education again, this time as a teacher. Who knows, he said. I've always enjoyed giving lessons. Foreigner will perform alongside Davenport Central High School choir students at Vibrant Arena at the Mark on Sunday, March the 3rd. Tickets start at $39 before fees, and the show starts at 7 p.m. Two um,
0: local stories that are under the caption of News Tracker, the first from Geneseo, Council OKs $100,000 on land for a fifth well. Geneseo has been making progress toward drilling a fifth water well. During a special city council meeting on Tuesday, Alderman voted 6-0 to zero to purchase one acre of land from the Samuelson Trust at the intersection of Grange Road and 1550 East for $100,000. The location was the only productive site out of all the tests that were done. A lot of unproductive sites, Mayor Sean Johnson said. The city is nearly ready with engineering and equipment to get the project started. Alderman Kent Swanson, 4th Ward, made the motion to buy the land, and Martin Rothschild, 3rd Ward, seconded. Alderman James Rudehouse, 2nd Ward, and Alderman Craig Arnold, 1st Ward, were absent. Following a vote of support during the committee of the whole meeting, the Geneseo Electric Department will be bringing a presentation to the March 26th committee of the whole meeting on a proposed two-megawatt solar array for the city. The city is talking with Renewable Support Services of Rock Island about a purchase power agreement with a buyout option in year six. The existing solar array on the south end of town is one megawatt mid Independent System Operator is forecasting our energy cost is going to go up in the future, said Eric Rohrwald, Director of Electrical Operations. We've been pretty fortunate to have our energy costs down in spring and fall. He added summertime is when the city sees volatility in energy costs. There are two plans for where to locate a second solar array, one on city-owned property north of town at Prairie Park by the Civil Defense Building, and the other on leased land outside city limits. Mayor Johnson noted he, City Administrator Brandon Maglin and Rowald, discussed it, and it was our desire to see this on city property. Alderman Brett Barnhart noted it doesn't hurt anything to find out more information, and the council voted 6-0 to move forward. An estimated cost would be $4.4 million. However, there could be $1 million in renewable energy credits. If the project didn't get renewable credit after being submitted to the Illinois Shines program, it would be a stop. The mayor said going with the Rock Island firm gives us a head start versus waiting for our bonds to fall off. And the other news tracker story. Colona Nixes plowing by ATVs on city streets. the The use of snow plow-equipped ATVs and UTVs on city streets has come up several times in committee in Colona. Use of ATV and UTV snow plows on city streets came to a vote in the city council Monday, with two aldermen, Tom Jones and Jim Dooley, voting yes and six voting no. Before the vote, Alderman Mick Painter of the 3rd Ward said the issue had come up in Public Safety Committee three times and been voted down all three times. Chairman Rich Goodrum of the 4th Ward said the issue was safety, noting the plows would be out in the dark when Public Works was out plowing. It didn't make sense to me, he said. ATVs and UTVs with snow plows are allowed on residents' own private property, according to existing ordinance, but they will not be allowed on city streets. The council discussed what to do with the old farmhouse at Kelowna's Scott Family Park, noting it cannot be burned by the fire department because of asbestos and lead. Alderman Goodrum said he felt it would be foolish to tear it down, but Alderman Sarah Lack of the second ward said the structure needs a lot of work. Alderman Painter and Alderman Larry Swimline had done an extensive check on the farmhouse. The foundation is likely totally gone, Painter said. Alderman said if the farmhouse is removed, the space could be used for RV parking or general parking for the resort. Mayor Don Ropp said the city would need a price on tearing it down, and whoever did the work would need to deal with asbestos and lead. I will investigate further he said. You are listening to the Quad Cities Times on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. It's time to turn to today's obituaries. And here is Scott. Oh, I'm sorry. Here, I found it. Sorry, I was lost in my pages. I'll read the pendings and then there is one obituary for Scott to read. Under the pendings, Dorothy M. Handley, age 101 of Milan, Illinois, died on Tuesday, February 27th. Michael Dean Boyles, age 66 of Davenport, passed away on Friday, February 23rd. Carson Willie, age 11, of Wheatland, Iowa, died on Tuesday, February 27th. And Stephen Shebler, age 75 of Bluegrass, Iowa, died on Wednesday, February 28th.
1: Our one obituary today, James Jim Anthony Mudd, age 86 of Cedar Falls, Iowa, died at his home on Tuesday afternoon, February the 20th, surrounded by his family. He is survived by his loving children, Jim Mudd Jr. and spouse Becky, Robert Mudd and spouse Maddie, Mary Kay Mudd-Bouchonville and spouse Art, Christopher Mudd and spouse Tracy, Elizabeth Mudd-Iozo, spouse Mark, and Kathleen Mudd-Shirk, spouse Andy. His grandchildren, James Anthony Third spouse Trey, Olivia Jackson, Alec, Maxwell, uh, Sophia, Ava, Samuel, Grace, Mark James, Jocelyn, Alicia, Quentin, Spouse Katie, Amelia, Margo, Stella, Cecilia, and Cecily K, and his great-granddaughter Meadow. Jim was born on August the 12th, 1937, in Owensboro, Kentucky, the youngest of Clyde and Catherine Hill Mudd's six children. After graduating from Owensboro Catholic High School in 1955, Jim earned his bachelor's degree from Brescia College, B-R-E-S-C-I-A. He then secured admission to Northwestern University to pursue a master's degree in broadcasting in 1960. 1959, just six weeks into his schooling, he was offered a job at WMOI in Monmouth, Illinois. In Monmouth, he met and married the love of his life, Cecilia Maxey. He married Cecilia K. Maxey on June 13, 1964, at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Monmouth, Illinois. Over the next many years, they welcomed six children and ventured through a series of relocations across central and southern Illinois. Jim's magnetic voice and reputation as a standout radio personality opened doors to management and ownership opportunities, finally landing them at 1250 a.m. KCFI in Cedar Falls, Iowa in 1973. In 1981, with the encouragement of his friend John Deere Sr., Jim started what is known today as Mud Advertising. This led to lifelong friendships with dealers all over the states, especially with Ray and Todd Green of Springfield, Illinois, and Brooks Hanna of Spearfish, South Dakota. Over four decades and counting, this business fueled lifelong friendships with thousands of clients and partners and was the source for his remarkable financial assistance and time commitments to support multiple organizations and charities near and far. Jim was a fervent supporter of St. Patrick's Catholic Church and an active member of Legatus for Catholic CEOs. He was a national board member for the Lead Like Jesus Ministry with Ken Blanchard and a trustee of the Pope John Paul II Cultural Center in Washington, D.C. Jim dedicated his time to DOCA, an organization for continuing education in defense and national security affairs, Jim was inducted into the Cedar Valley 8 over 80. He lent his charismatic presence for over two decades as the Master of Ceremonies for the Sturgis Falls Parade. Jim and Cecilia commissioned beautification and enrichment efforts for Cedar Falls Main Street and the Cedar Falls Public Library. Jim was also a member of the University of Northern Iowa Foundation Board. His most cherished contributions were in support of the military, Jim gave his time to serve his country from 1957 to 1963 when he was honorably discharged from the Army National Guard with the rank of Staff Sergeant. Each year from 2005 to 2012, Jim had the privilege of escorting nearly 50 World War II combat veterans representing the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines from the Cedar Valley to Washington, D.C., embodying his profound respect and gratitude for their service. He also took great pride in sponsoring the Marine Band for the Sturgis Falls Celebration for nearly 30 years, as Mud Advertising will continue to do so in his memory. Today and throughout his life, Jim's legacy is characterized by relentless ambition, persistent positivity, and a tireless commitment to family, friends, community, and business. His attentive nature was a constant inspiration to others, knowing he was always willing to share wisdom-filled insight and poignant advice. Grounded in his unwavering Catholic Christian faith, he had an impact on nearly everyone he met. With his charismatic gift of gab, quick-witted retorts, good looks, and dapper style, he was an entertainer who captured the eye and awe of anyone around. He was a remarkable man who lived life to the fullest." Visitation was held on Friday, February the twenty-third, in Mud Advertising Production Studio at nine fifteen Technology Parkway, Cedar Falls, Iowa, from four to seven p.m. A short vigil led by Father Ivan was began at seven p.m. Funeral Mass will be held Saturday, February twenty-fourth, at Saint. Or I guess was held February, Saturday, February twenty-fourth, at Saint Patrick's Catholic Church. Following the viewing. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made to the Cedar Valley Honor Flight in memory of James A. Mudd, payable to Sullivan, S-U-L-L-I-V-E-N, har- dash Hartog, H-A-R-T-O-G-H, Davis, Cedar Valley Honor Flight, care of Frank Mag, Magsamen, M-A-G-S-A-M-E-N, 1065 Prospect Boulevard, Waterloo, Iowa, 50701.
0: It's time to turn to the opinion page now of the Quad City Times. The first editorial is by Gary Franks. He served three terms as a U.S. representative for Connecticut's 5th District and is a syndicated columnist. Eighty percent of Americans want age limits for president. Nearly 80 percent of Americans in a Pew Research poll conducted in October of last year want age limits for the president of the United States. It would seem the age of 80 is the cutoff point. I thought that in a democracy the majority rules. Guess I was wrong. Does anyone know an 80-year-old who is not overly stubborn, slow to react, and cranky? If so, maybe you are the 80-year-old who doesn't share that fate. But the overwhelming majority of Americans would concede this to be true. These are not the best attributes for a world leader. Everyone would agree that those fortunate enough, fortunate enough to reach 80 are no longer in their prime. And can someone tell me why 20% of Americans prefer to be led by a leader beyond his prime in our very precarious world filled with adversaries? Yes, everyone thought Dwight Eisenhower was old, a mere babe to President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump. Biden would be 85 at the end of a second term, and Trump would be 80 midway through his second term in office. And yes, there were cries that Ronald Reagan was too old. I really do not think that our founding fathers ever thought the American people would elect as president folks in their 80s for the highest office in the land. I also truly do not believe they thought Americans would want 80-year-olds in Congress, the Supreme Court, or in any other capacity in the federal government. We should want those running our country to be on top of their game, in their prime, It is unwise to elect a president on the decline. Well, you say we have elections. The people can vote members of Congress out of office. That is laughable. More members of Congress over 80 have died in office than those in their 80s who have been defeated while in office. Some have suggested we require a cognitive test of our politicians. If they can pass it, they should be able to continue in office. I disagree. Age is a funny thing. It is kind of like life. You are good until you are not. We can be the picture of health one day and dead the next, while we can pass a cognitive test one day and struggle to remember what you ate for breakfast the next. As you get older, there is an increased likelihood that things could go bad. But what the old folks have in their favor are the rules they help to establish. They also know politics, They can control the election primary process. They can determine who is in control of their political party. They can raise the most money. The scale of politics tilts toward the old guys. They have done the job, so we figure they know how to do the job. What would explain the establishment and media's adamant intent to apparently force a Biden-Trump rematch on us? Maybe it is all about risk. For many, we took a risk in hiring the black guy, former President Barack Obama. We took a risk in hiring the guy with zero prior experience, Trump. This time, the establishment and media seem to be reluctant to take another risk. Yet the American people want anything other than the choices being put forward by their respective parties today. In the 2016 election, Trump beat a highly qualified woman, Hillary Clinton. Electing a woman would have been a risk for many. The nation was willing to go with a male who had never been elected to anything and had not served in the military. This had never been done before. Voters were willing to do it instead of throwing their support behind Clinton. Now our new normal is a guy who has served as POTUS. It seems like the establishment is tired of risk, tired of new things. Term limits are not a panacea either. The power of unelected staffers would increase if we booted out folks who had started early in politics and had to be shown the door early. These elected officials could be in their prime. They could actually be in their 40s, 50s, or 60s. They could be so many years or even decades removed from the true problematic ones, the folks in their 80s unelected and unknown bureaucrats would run America. Not good. They would have zero accountability. That would take us from the pot into the fire. The following are the advantages for these two old guys. First, Trump Biden are better at getting the nomination for president because they have already done it before. Second, Trump Biden are more skilled in getting a lot of votes from their respective bases since they set records for vote-getting in the past. Third, Trump or Biden can count on the unabashed support of the media. Or, in the case of Trump, can soak up all the media attention or oxygen in the room. The media is concerned, however, about the vice president's selections, and for good reason. Today, those decisions are fluid. The following are examples of the media's support for a Biden-Trump race. First, former South Carolina Gover- Nick- Governor Nikki Haley crushes Biden by up to 18 points in head-to-head polls, a fact ignored by the media. Second, over 70% of voters do not want a Biden-Trump rematch. This is another fact that the media ignores. Third, and as already mentioned, nearly 80% of Americans do not want an 80-year-old president. This is another fact ignored by the media. The American people should get what they want. Unfortunately, the old folks, the establishment, and the 1% who financially support each party, as well as the media, all have their thumbs on the scale. Unfortunately, when the will of the powerful prevails over the overwhelmingly held opinions of the general public, we face a clear and present danger to our democracy. Again, that was by Gary Franks, who served three terms as a U.S. representative for Connecticut's 5th District.
1: Our other opinion piece today is entitled, Biden, Bad for Palestinians, Trump Would Be Worse. It's written by Zach Bocamp, who is senior correspondent at Vox, and his columns are syndicated by Tribune Media Agency. During the war in Gaza, President Joe Biden has taken a consistently pro-Israel line. He traveled to Israel after the October 7th attack, provided the Israel Defense Forces with huge quantities of munitions, refused to publicly call for an indefinite ceasefire, and vetoed U.N. resolutions it opposed. This all reflects the president's strongly held personal beliefs on the need to support the Jewish state and the idea that public support for Israel gives Americans greater behind-the-scenes leverage. For those who wish Washington would put more pressure on Jerusalem to stop the killing, this raises a fundamental question. Would President Donald Trump have done anything differently? The answer is almost certainly yes. Biden has put only inconsistent pressure on Israel. Trump would have put none. Everything we know about the former president, from his extensive policy record on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to his top advisors' statements on the war, suggests he would have no qualms about aligning himself completely with Israel's far-right government. While Biden has pushed Israel behind the scenes on issues like food and medical aid to civilians, with some limited success, it's hard to imagine Trump even lifting a finger in defense of Gazan civilians whom he wants to ban from entering the United States. With one of these two men most almost certain to be inaugurated next January, it's worth being clear-eyed about their actual policy differences. And the truth is this: Biden is a traditional pro-Israel-American centrist, while Trump has openly and publicly aligned himself with the Israeli right wing. Those are two very different world views that would yield very different policies. Donald Trump loved deals and an Israeli-Palestinian peace agreement would be the deal of the century, as he's fond of saying. Earlier in his administration, it seemed like that might cause him to climb down from the hard-line pro-Israel positions he had outlined on the campaign trail After all, you can't get to a deal if you're only talking to one side. But getting Palestinians to the table would have required a more even-handed policy than what Trump, the self-described most pro-Israel president ever, pursued. There's a reason Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu all but openly campaigned for Trump against Biden in 2020. Trump does not approach Israel like other issues. Neither his deal-maker bravado nor his transactional approach to other alliances like NATO tempered his hard-line support for Netanyahu and the Israeli right while in office. To make the case that he would have handled the Gaza war differently, one would need to show some reason to believe Trump would break with his established pattern. And there isn't one. Trump's Israel-Palestine policy per accounts like this one from the Washington Post's Isaac Stanley Becker, was largely the product of delegation. Uninterested in the details, he outsourced policy formulation to aides. While Trump has said relatively little about the Gaza war since October the 7th, these influential aides have been quite vocal, and they have attacked Biden from the right. Chief among these deputies was son-in-law Jared Kushner, In a public appearance at Harvard in February, he expressed outright opposition to Biden's current push for a Palestinian state as part of any post-war settlement. Quote, giving them a Palestinian state is basically a reinforcement of, we're going to reward you for bad actions, end quote, Kushner said. He goes on to say, you have to show terrorists that they will not be tolerated, that we will take strong action, end quote. Trump's ambassador to Israel, noted hardliner David Friedman, went even further, accusing the Biden team of hampering the war effort by pressuring Israel to limit the civilian casualty toll of its bombing campaign. At no time, while I was ambassador, did the United States put any handcuffs or limitations on Israel's ability to respond, he added in an interview with Israel's Channel 12 news station. And Jason Greenblatt, Trump's special envoy for Middle East policy blasted the Biden administration's decision to impose sanctions on violent West Bank settlers as wrong and deceptive. He also claimed to be shocked that the State Department was investigating the possibility of declaring an independent Palestinian state, a decision he termed terribly harmful and dangerous. By contrast, Trump's advisors have praised the elements of Biden's policy that his left-wing critics most reject the president's public and full-throated support for the Israeli war effort. It's one thing to say Biden is falling short and another thing entirely to say he's not meaningfully different than Trump would have been. Every piece of evidence we have suggests he would be and that this and that this difference could matter a great deal to the future of America's approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And again, this was written by Zach Bocamp, a senior correspondent at Vox.
0: Moving to the sports page, uh, first a note about what to watch in the next few days. Iowa Hawkeyes men's basketball at Northwestern on Saturday at 4.30 and women's basketball versus Ohio State at home on Sunday at noon and then the Big Ten Tournament for Women's Basketball starts March 6th. The Illinois Fighting Illini play men's basketball at Wisconsin on Saturday at noon, and women's basketball versus Nebraska on Sunday at 3. The Iowa State Cyclones, uh, women's basketball versus Cincinnati on Saturday at 1, Um, Men's basketball at UCF, Saturday at 3. Professional Chicago Bulls versus the Bucks today, Friday at 9, and at the Kings on Monday at 9. The Chicago Blackhawks versus the Blue Jackets, Saturday at 7, at the Avalanche on Monday at 8. And finally, the Quad City Storm at Evansville, today, Friday at 7, and again tomorrow on Saturday at 7. And, of course, there's lots of other sports. Um, The viewpoint on the sports page is by Dave Selvig, Clark Fever to Hit WNBA. Kate Clark certainly had nothing left to prove, but leaving Iowa was not a slam dunk. Conventional wisdom pegged it at 50-50, on whether she would use her COVID year and return for a fifth season of eligibility with the Hawkeyes. During a postgame celebration after she broke the storing, scoring record against Michigan on February 15th, fans chanted loudly, One more year, but it was not meant to be. Clark announced Thursday she's taking her considerable talents to the WNBA. Clark is the rare person, let alone athlete who never seems to make a misstep, both on the court and off. Yes, she turns the ball over from time to time, but so does LeBron. She has an uncanny knack to make the perfect pass on the court and deliver an insightful response to reporters afterward. While her game on the court is a cross between artistic and freewheeling, much like Magic Johnson, off the court she's buttoned up. It's never been about her. She deflects credit to coaches and teammates. She gives a very Derek Cheater-esque vibe. She doesn't make waves off the court, save that stuff for on it. Amazingly, Clark seems to rival the three legends mentioned above. With Clark at the helm, Iowa Hawkeye women's basketball has become an event, not just a game. Wednesday night's tilt at the barn in Minneapolis would have been crickets without Clark, Instead, it was packed to see another dazzling performance from the West Des Moines product. 24 points, 15 rebounds, and 10 assists. It's been like that everywhere this season, from Iowa City to Ames to Piscataway and everywhere in between. Clark packs out arenas like Taylor Swift. And like Swift, my daughters and wife help me, she, Caitlin, also always delivers. Clark, the soon-to-be all-time NCAA scoring leader, male or female, likely still has three more home games to play. Sunday's game against number 2, Ohio State, followed by two NCAA tournament contests at Carver Hawkeye Arena in mid-March. Getting tickets for any of those will not be easy, and doing so will likely burn a hole in your wallet. Want to see Clark lace them up in person sometime soon? Head to the Indiana Fevers website and start scooping up tickets. Word is they're going fast. Indiana has the number one pick in the WNBA draft on April 15th, the future home of Caitlin Clark.
1: and related tickets on market cost hundreds. Caitlin Clark's final regular season home game at Iowa is likely to bring one of the priciest tickets in women's college basketball history. That's the word from ticketpick.com which said the average ticket price on the secondary market for the sixth-ranked Hawkeyes game Sunday against number 2 Ohio State is a whopping $557 according to USA Today. There's plenty online, especially after Clark announced on social media Thursday that this would be her final season at Iowa. Clark already holds the women's all-time scoring mark and and surpassed Lynette Woodard's 3,649 points set when the NCAA did not administer the game. Clark's 18 points away from breaking the NCAA's all-time scoring mark. Men or women held by the late Pete Maravich with 3,667 points. Cover Arena has capacity of 14,998. The school sold out season tickets long ago and is not selling seats for the rematch with Ohio State. As of Thursday, the cheapest tickets left, according to Ticket Pick cost $487, and the most expensive seats cost $2,919.
0: That brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today. My name is Rachel Mithelman, and my partner at the microphone has been Scott Sblavik. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you so much for listening to IRIS. I was first and only radio reading service.
2: Exploring Science and the Sea Dolphins are among the chattiest creatures in the oceans. They use sound to find and catch food as part of their courtship rituals and just to stay in touch with other dolphins. Many of those sounds are short clicks and high-pitched squeaks. And a team of researchers is using computers to pick out patterns of these sounds produced by different species of dolphins and whales. The scientists are using a technique known as machine learning. They feed large amounts of data to a computer and the program looks for patterns. Finding patterns is relatively easy for trained human experts but it takes a long time. Computers can do it faster but they need to learn how to find patterns buried in huge amounts of data. In this case the scientists used audio recorded at five sites in the Gulf of Mexico over a two-year period. The recordings included more than 50 million clicks produced by dolphins and whales. The computer wasn't given any examples to guide it. Instead, it had to sort through all the clicks to find patterns on its own. And it identified seven types of clicks. Researchers recognized one type, which is produced by one species of dolphin. Now they're trying to tie the other types of clicks to other species. Their goal is to develop a way to keep an ear on dolphins. Identifying which species are in a body of water can help biologists track changes in populations perhaps as a result of oil spills or climate change, all by listening to the sounds of these chatty creatures. Science in the Sea is a production of the University of Texas Marine Science Institute and is available as a weekly podcast at scienceandthesea.org I'm Holly Brawley.